Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. She was a phoenix queen, so shall she be. Her ashes not revived more, phoenix she. Her personal perfections, who would tell, must dip his pen in the Heliconian well. Which I may not, my pride doth but aspire to read what others write and then admire. Now say, have women worth, or have they none? Or had they some, but with our queen is gone? Nay, masculines, you have thus taxed us long. But she, though dead, will vindicate her wrong. Let such as say our sex is void of reason. No, tis a slander now, but once was treason. But happy England, which had such a queen. Oh, happy, happy had those days still been. But happiness lies in a higher sphere. Then wonder not, Eliza moves not here. Full fraught with honour, riches, and with days she set, she set, like Titan in his rays. No more shall rise or set such glorious sun until the heaven's great revolution. If then new things their old form must retain, Eliza shall rule Albion once again. Here lies the pride of queens, pattern of kings. So blaze it, fame, his feather for thy wings. Here lies the envied yet unparalleled prince, whose living virtues speak though dead long since, if many worlds as that fantastic framed, in every one be her great glory framed. Welcome to the other half. Episode 3.21, The Samurai, The Wrestler, and The Slave. The poem that I just read to you, well, part of it actually, was Anne Bradstreet's In Honour of That High and Most Mighty Princess, Queen Elizabeth of Happy Memory. Bradstreet was colonial North America's first published poet and a noted early feminist, though such a term is rather ahistorical for the time. That particular bit comes at the end of the poem, 
with the beginning bit that I didn't read, focusing on comparing Queen Elizabeth I to other great rulers that came before her, ones that Bradstreet considered to be inferior to her beloved Gloriana. We started this season with Queen Elizabeth's supposed speech at Tilbury in 1588, and so I thought it fitting that we bring it to an end with Elizabeth again, this time in a eulogy written about a decade after her death. What this poem shows is how quickly someone can transition from life to legend, and how their memory can become deified so very quickly. All of the women that I've covered in this season so far have achieved this kind of fame within their own countries, but have done so in different ways. We've had explorers and warriors, peasants and queens, figures of record and figments of myth. Today we will bring it all together and see a little bit of what we can conclude from our year with folk heroines. That will be the second half of the episode. In the first half, though, I'd like to cover three women for whom I could not find enough information to merit a full episode, either due to lack of sources or me not speaking enough foreign languages. If you dig deep enough, pretty much every nation on Earth has a folk heroine lurking somewhere in their history, and the nine that I've covered so far barely scratch the surface. After this, I'll be going on hiatus for the rest of the summer, and I will be putting my feet up for a little while along with doing the research for the fourth season of The Other Half, which will begin on the 11th of September. Our new topic will be... Well, I'm afraid you're going to have to wait until the end to find out. However, if you're a patron of the show, then you already know this, as they have been voting on it for some time. And this is a great segue for me to tell you that you can sign up and become a patron of the show for as little as a dollar a month. It really helps me out in getting the podcast out, and I really can't thank my patrons enough. If you too would like to support the podcast, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. So, as I said, we're going to start off with some of the women for whom I did not feel I had enough content to merit a full episode, but are still folk heroines in their own right. To tell the truth, there are still more that I have not yet covered, but I've selected these three as a lovely little snapshot to finish us off, and we are going to start off in 12th century Japan. There are perhaps no more famous fighters on earth than the samurai a suicidally brave, noble class of warriors from Japan. They emerged in the late 12th century as paid retainers of local barons, or daimyo, who ruled small local fiefdoms. This was a period of relatively low central control, as the Japanese emperors became just figureheads. Power instead was held by these daimyos, who each had a collection of samurai warriors who would lead their armies, defend their territories, and fight wars of expansion against other daimyos. There are actually quite a few similarities between them and medieval knights of the European High Middle Ages. 
They adhered to strict codes of conduct, held highly ritualised lives, and were fierce warriors on the battlefield. Over time, the samurai would come to be the very symbol of Japan, and come to occupy an almost mythical status. Certain parts of their chivalric code, known as Bushido, survived in Japanese culture long after the end of the samurai era. For example, seppuku, the act of ritual suicide performed by a samurai to prevent himself from falling into enemy hands, was commonly performed by Japanese soldiers during the Second World War, and much of modern Japanese business practices are still based on Bushido. However, our story begins at the birth of the samurai, during the Genpei War between 1180 and 1185. These were Japan's Wars of the Roses, a great fight between two rival clans over who should be the dominant force. Instead of Lancaster and York, however, the main combatants were the Minamoto and the Taira. It began when the Taira launched a coup d'etat. The Japanese emperor, Go Shirakawa, had relied on both of these clans to maintain his power, but had recently begun to favour the Minamoto, as had his son, Mochihito. Scared of losing influence, the Taira came in and took over the government, sparking the Genpei War. It was a particularly bloody conflict, and was the final nail in the coffin of imperial power, and is widely regarded as marking the transition of Japan from an absolute monarchy into a feudal state. Thousands of samurai fought on both sides of the conflict, almost all of them being men. But with one notable exception. Tomoya Gozen is the quintessential woman warrior in Japanese cultural history, yet very little is known about her. Indeed, and you've heard this before, she may not have existed at all. Much of what we know about her comes from ballads and poems, the most famous of which is the tale of the Heiki, a kind of Japanese Iliad. The cornucopia of contradictory accounts mean that we have no real idea of when she was born, who her parents were, whether she had children, or where and when she died. The oral tradition tends to have that effect on stories. All our knowledge of her is based around her heroic exploits in this war. According to tradition, she was the daughter of the wet nurse of Minamoto General Minamoto Kiso Yoshinaka. She was also his foster sister and possibly his lover or concubine, which is super weird if you think about it too hard, so let's just not. The Heiki, and I'm using the McCullough translation for this, describes her as, quote, especially beautiful, with white skin, long hair, and charming features. She was also a remarkably strong archer, and as a swordswoman, she was a warrior worth a thousand, ready to confront a demon or god, mounted or on foot. She had known Yoshinaka all of her life, and he had brought her along to the war to fight alongside him. Woman warriors were not entirely unknown in Japan. They were certainly more prevalent than they were in contemporary Europe. But, as a general rule, women given martial training were expected to use those skills for defence of the home, not on the offence or in the battlefield. And certainly the presence of a woman so high up the command structure of an army was very unusual. Indeed, the Heiki states that, quote, Whenever a battle was imminent, Yoshinaka sent her out as his first captain, equipped with strong armour, an oversized sword, and a mighty bow. 
and she performed more deeds of valour than any of his other warriors. Now, Yoshinaka was the cousin of the leader of the Minamoto, a man called Yoritomo, and while they fought on the same side, they really didn't get along. Big, powerful men with big, powerful armies generally don't. In 1183, about halfway through the war, the two had a big falling out. It's all very complicated, so I'll spare you the details. But the upshot was that Yoshinaka was humiliated and wanted to get one over on his rival and take control of the clan. No matter that there was a war on, power is power. So, the following year, Yoshinaka and Tomoe laid siege to the Japanese imperial capital of Kyoto and burned the palace to the ground and captured the emperor and then attempted to march north to establish a new capital. There, with the emperor under his thumb, Yoshinaka hoped that he would have the power and prestige to trump his cousin and become the most powerful warlord in Japan. That was the plan, anyway. Unfortunately for him... Yoritomo's army intercepted and defeated him at the Battle of Uji, a rout so complete that he was left with only seven retainers by his side, one of them, of course, being Tomoe. This band fled and managed to rally around 300 cavalry that also fled the battle to their side. Now, a rational man would have tried to escape and plan his next move, but that is not the samurai way. Instead, Yoshinaka spotted an army of around 6,000 of his cousin's men and resolved to attack, despite being hopelessly outnumbered. He resolved, quote, If we must meet death, let it be by galloping against a worthy foe. So Yoshinaka led his 300 cavalry in a suicidal charge straight at the centre of the enemy line. It is in this engagement that Tomoe had her moment. The initial charge caused utter carnage, and soon the 300 were whittled down to just five. They had broken through the enemy lines and had set up a defensive position on a nearby hill. Yoshinaka turned to Tomoe and said to her, quote, Quickly now, you are a woman, so be off with you. Go wherever you please. I intend to die in battle or kill myself if I am wounded. It would be unseemly to let people say Lord Yoshinaka kept a woman with him in his last battle. Although hurt and probably rather offended by these words, Tomoe abided by this order to leave his side, but she refused to flee. Instead, she resolved to put on a bit of a show to prove to her foster father slash lover that she was worthy of his love. Quote, Ah, if only I could find a worthy foe, I would fight a last battle for his lordship to watch. She saw a squadron of 300 horsemen and charged right at them. She cut straight through, man after man, until she came across their commander, a huge bloke renowned for his strength. She grabbed him, ripped his head clean off his shoulders, before riding off into the sunset. That is the Heike's version of the story of Tomoe Gozen, and what is surprising is how short it is. This is the main source for the legend of Tomoe, and it's all covered in just two pages. In other sources, which are not all that much longer, she is said to have sought the permission of Yoshinaka for one final kill in his honour. When he agreed, she charged into the heart of the enemy, found their strongest warrior, 
and beat him so convincingly in single combat that he went into voluntary exile, rather than let the stench of being beaten by a woman taint his family honour. Now again, what happened next is totally a matter of legend. But the most commonly version told version of the tale is that she was later defeated by another famous samurai and forced to become his concubine. Others have her being a cloistered Buddhist nun or some kind of avenging angel assassin against the enemies of Yoshinaka. Despite the very sketchy evidence for her very existence, Tomoe Gozen has become one of Japan's most famous women and is ubiquitous, particularly in video games depicting the samurai. There is a 15th century Noah play about her, a kind of Japanese fusion of drama and ballet. This is very unusual, as there are so few that depict women. She is also celebrated annually during Kyoto's Festival of the Ages. And she was also popular with artists, with most showing her wielding the Naginata sword, though the sources have her preferring the katana. If your proclivities are more towards novels, Jessica Salmonson made her the heroine of her fantasy series, The Tomoe Gozen Saga, in the 1980s. And she is also a supporting character in the 2010 sci-fi miniseries, Riverworld. And this is not to mention the plethora of anima and manga depictions of her down the years. Whether love-struck lover or vicious warrior, Tomoe Gozen has come to represent many of the virtues that Japanese culture has, down the years, held most dear an honourable warrior spirit, and a loyalty to one's family and country. And that is how she became a national heroine. Okay, let's move across the Sea of Japan, about 1,500 miles inland and a century forward to 13th century Mongolia, to tell the story of possibly the most unusual woman we've yet covered. Now, when I say the word Mongolia, I'm going to imagine the first thing you think of is Genghis Khan, the world's greatest conqueror and, let's say, most problematic human being. The Mongol Empire that he founded covered, at its greatest extent, around 9 million square miles, stretching from the Sea of Japan to Hungary. However, by the accession of his grandson, Kublai Khan, the empire had split into four separate khanates, each of which ran their own affairs and only nominally paid homage to the Great Khan. One of these regional khanates was the Chattagai Khanate, which covers most of Central Asia, including all of modern Uzbekistan and much of modern Kazakhstan and Tajikistan. Its ruler was Kedu Khan, and apologies in advance for the number of times I'm about to say the word Khan. He was the cousin of the Great Khan, who had an impressive 14 children. Well, really, the most impressive person there is his wife, if we're honest. Of those children, 13 were sons, and one was a girl, and her name was Kutulan. Like many girls with a bunch of brothers, Kutulan grew up as a fiercely competitive child, who sought to best her brothers in all pursuits. Like all Mongol women... She was taught to ride and shoot from the saddle from an early age. But she wasn't content with the conventional. So she was also trained as a wrestler, and was reportedly extremely good at it. She was not what one might call conventionally beautiful. She was a very large woman, big-boned and built like, well, a wrestler. 
Our main source of Catullan's life is from Marco Polo and his account of his journeys to the East. I'm going to be quoting from the Henry Yule translation. While I'm sure she looked very different from the Italian women that he had been around all his life, Marco Polo was very taken by her, calling Catullan, quote, very beautiful, so tall and muscular, so stout and shapely withal, that she was almost like a giantess. Like Tamar Gozen, she was a great warrior, and she needed to be. Her father was constantly at war, often with her cousin, the Great Khan, and Catullan was fierce on the battlefield. Marco Polo reported that she was, quote, so strong and brave that in all her father's realm there was no man who could outdo her in feats of strength. In all trials, she showed greater strength than any man of them. Later on, he wrote that, quote, Her father never went on a campaign, but she went with him. And gladly he took her, for not a knight in all his realm played such feats of arms as she did. Sometimes she would quit her father's side and make a dash at the host of the enemy, and seize some man thereout as deftly as a hawk pounces on a bird, and carry him to her father. And she did this many a time. This martial skill was very important for her legend. The great Khan, Kublai, was frequently criticised for being soft and fond of luxuries. He favoured diplomacy and competent administration, not the traditional austere martial valour favoured by Cthulhuan and her family. But while her skill on the battlefield marks out as prime folk heroine material, where she has truly entered legend is through her ability in The Ring. Wrestling, horsemanship and archery were considered to be the three manly skills of the Mongols, devised as ways of training soldiers and keeping them fit and sharp. The object of Mongolian wrestling is to get your opponent to hit the ground. And, as you can tell by the manly part of the three manly skills, it was considered a purely male endeavour. But Cthulhuan cared naught for such things. And as the favoured daughter of the Khan, men were forced to compete with her. Well, they can try. She was reputed to be the finest wrestler of her age. Now, as the daughter of the Khan, her hand in marriage was very much in demand. However, she was in no particular hurry to wed, and so decided to make things a little interesting. She declared that any man of marrying her had to be, well, worthy. So she sent out a challenge far and wide. If you think you're tough enough to marry me, fight me in the ring. If you win, I'll marry you. If I win, you give me 100 horses. Over a 100 men answered the challenge. Each of them came and failed to beat Cthulhuan, meaning that she had amassed over 10,000 horses, which frankly seems like a bit of a hassle. Think of how much time it would take to muck out those stables. Now all of this was creating waves and many a bruised male ego. Her defeated would-be suitors began to put it about that the reason she was seemingly refusing to marry was that she was her father's lover. So this was all getting actually a little bit embarrassing. In 1280, a man that Marco Polo describes as, quote, a noble young gallant, the son of a rich and puissant king, a man of prowess and valiance and great strength of body. 
He too was young and handsome, fearless and strong in every way, insomuch as that not a man in all his father's realm could vie with him. Sounds like a bit of a catch, to be honest. He was so confident that he could beat her, that this man increased the wager to 1,000 horses, not merely 100. Perfect, her parents thought. He is eminently suitable, the son of a powerful king and a great wrestler. So, they implored Cthulhu to throw the match. Just marry the guy, for goodness sake. No one will think any less of you, and we can put all these nasty incestuous rumours behind us. However, Cthulhu was having none of it. If this man wanted her hand, he would have to wrestle her to the ground. Now, if this was Greek myth, then the guy would use some dastardly trick to win the match, or there would be some sort of divine intervention. But this is Mongolia. They do things a little differently there. Marco Polo described the bout in his account of his travels. Quote, When both had taken posts in the middle of the hall, they grappled each other by the arms and wrestled this way and that, but for a long time neither could be the better of the other. At last, however, it so befell that the damsel threw him right valiantly on the palace pavement. And when he found himself thus thrown and her standing over him, great indeed was his shame and discomfiture. He got up straight away, and without more ado, departed with all his company, and returned to his father, full of shame and vexation, that he, who had never yet found a man that could stand before him, should have been thus worsted by a girl, and his one thousand horses he left behind him. Sounds like a bit of a sore loser, frankly. But yeah, her parents were pissed. Their daughter was unmarried, their daughter was still unmarried, and the chance of an advantageous marriage was over. And worst of all, they had another bloody thousand horses to feed and muck out every day. Eventually, however, Cthulhu's father came to accept that his daughter was not someone that he could control, and so awarded her a paiser in recognition of her independence and power. This was, essentially, a great big tablet worn around the neck that delegated a tremendous amount of power from the Khan to his wearer. As far as we know, Cthulhu is the only woman in Mongol history to be granted one. Cthulhu would not remain single for the rest of her life, though, as all the sources agree that she did eventually get married. However, though they are in agreement on that, they do not concur on who the lucky man was. One Islamic chronicler contends that she married the Persian ruler Ghazan, while more salacious accounts describe her eventual nuptials with a man named Abtakal. According to this tradition, Abtakal was sent by one of Cthulhu's father's enemies to kill him. However, he was a lousy assassin and was quickly caught before he could fulfil his mission. He was saved, however, from execution by his mother, who offered herself a punishment instead of him. Abtakal refused his mother's offer of self-sacrifice, demanding that he be punished for his actions. Kaiju Khan was taken by this act of maternal heroism and filial bravery, and spared both of them, commissioning Abtakal as an army officer. Now, to me, arming your assassin seems an incredibly bad plan, but it seems to have worked out the best. It was while in her father's court 
that Catullan came to know Abtarkal and fell in love with him. Indeed, she didn't even make him wrestle for her hand. In her later years, she was increasingly used on the battlefield as a military commander. As I said earlier, the great Khan Kublai and her father didn't get on, and so much of her life was spent on campaign, rallying old-school Mongol warlords to fight against the great Khan and his soft forces of reform in China. In 1301, her father died, leaving the succession rather up for debate, which is an occupational hazard if you decide to have 14 children. It seems that he had initially wanted his only daughter, Cthulhuun, to succeed him, but she turned the offer down. She was a military woman at heart, and so wished to lead the army and leave the boring politicking to her favourite brother. However, even in this compromise, she was opposed, with one of her brothers telling her, quote, You should mind your scissors and needles, and another yelling, What have you to do with kingship and chieftainship? After this episode, she becomes rather lost in the fog, dying in around 1306, either in battle or of assassination, the sources aren't clear. Even with her reference in Marco Polo, Catullan probably would have been forgotten, at least in Western history, but for an 18th century French scholar called François Petit de la Croix. He came across her story while researching Genghis Khan, and reimagined her in his narrative as the beautiful daughter of a Chinese emperor who refused to marry anyone who wasn't her intellectual equal. This in turn was then reimagined by Carlo Gozzi in his play Turando as the story of a wicked woman who would only marry a man if he could answer three riddles. If he could not, he would be executed. It's all rather a tense affair that ends in a marriage, like all great plays. If the name Tarando sounds familiar to you, it's because you are very cultured, as this has been adapted by a number of other composers and playwrights, including, most famously, Giacomo Puccini. His version of the opera contains probably the most famous aria in operatic history, in which the hero vows to win the hand of the cold princess. You may have heard it before. Just gotta love a bit of Pavarotti. She also shows up in Netflix's Marco Polo, played by Claudia Kim, where naturally, instead of being portrayed as the big badass woman that she was, she's instead slim, conventionally attractive, and sleeps with Marco Polo the first chance she got. 
which frankly is cultural desecration of the highest order. However, back in Mongolia, her memory is rather less sexualized. She is the heroine of innumerable books in the area, but rather than glory on the battlefield or her complicated love life, she is most remembered for her wrestling career. Indeed, today, before any Mongolian male wrestling match, the participants are required to bare their chests to prove that they don't have breasts. Even now, seven centuries on, Mongolian male wrestlers are fearful that they may come up against the great Cthulhuan, the most formidable wrestler who ever lived. Now, this brings us on to the final woman of this series, and we're going to be moving around 600 years forward and halfway around the world to someone of very different circumstances to the great-granddaughter of Genghis Khan. In the series on Njinga, I talked quite a bit about the forced movement of slaves from the African continent to Brazil by the Portuguese. It is estimated that somewhere in the region of 12 million people were transferred history of the transatlantic slave trade. The conditions aboard these ships were unimaginably bad, with around one in six dying in cramped, unsanitary conditions. And that was on ships that weren't rife with disease. On some, the death toll could be as bad as one in two. One slave, later freed with the help of American abolitionists, later recalled what it was like. Quote, Its horrors, ah, who can describe? None can so truly depict its horrors as the poor, unfortunate, miserable wretch that has been confined within its portals. We were thrust into the hold of the vessel in a state of nudity, the males being crammed on one side and the females on the other. And the hold was so low that we could not stand up, but were obliged to crouch upon the floor or sit down. Day and night were the same to us, sleep being denied to us from the confined position of our bodies, and we became desperate through suffering and fatigue. Oh, the loathsomeness and filth of that horrible place will never be effaced from my memory. And nay, as long as memory holds her seat in this distracted brain, will I remember that. My heart, even at this date, sickens at the thought of it. Things didn't get much better once they reached the European colonies in the Americas, with the Portuguese colonies in Brazil having a average life expectancy of just eight years once these slaves reached shore. Life was exceedingly cheap, with it being considered much more economically efficient to transport new slaves than to keep those already in the colony in good health. Generally, Portuguese slaves in Brazil either worked in gold mines or on sugar plantations, with their owners entrusting their slaves to the quote-unquote care of slave drivers and overseers, who had complete carte blanche to do whatever they liked with the slaves under their control. How does a person live like that? What is the purpose of living a life that is held in such little regard? Well... One of the ways that slaves kept going was through their religious faith and devotion, and by sharing stories. They also venerated folk heroines and heroes, the most famous of which is the legend of Escrava Anastasia. 
The story of Escrava Anastasia starts actually a century after her death in 1968, with the decision of the Museum of the Negro in Rio de Janeiro putting on an exhibition to mark the 80th anniversary of the abolition of slavery in Brazil. The museum's director had a little dig in the National Archives and came across an image of a black woman with piercing blue eyes and an iron bit punishment face mask. The director included this image in the exhibition and soon he noticed that he was getting a lot of visits from some very devout old black men and women who would bring rosaries and ask for blessings and intercession from the woman in the image. The museum spoke to these people and discovered that the image was of a slave folk saint, very little known outside of that community, that of Escrava Anastasia. Her story had travelled down the oral tradition for a century, but as it had been confined to impoverished and little cared for or listened people, it had never been published or exposed to the wider popular consciousness. These accounts were brought together for the first time in published form in the 1970s by Maria Salome, whose account is quoted in John Burdick's Blessed Anastasia, and I will read it to you now. The slaves brought from Africa to Brazil came from Guinea, Angola and the Congo, bringing rosary beads with them around their necks. Only the strongest and those with the best teeth were chosen. Many died on the trip to the north of Brazil. Yellow fever and nostalgia for their distant homeland took many lives. Among the slaves were chosen the healthiest female slaves to take on heavy tasks in the plantations and sugar mills. Among them stood out because of her stature and the perfection of her facial traits, a young woman of Angola. She was beautiful, with white teeth and sensual lips, upon which could be noted a sad smile. In her large eyes there was always a shining star. Because of her physical gifts, it may be presumed that she was the property of a noble family, which, upon returning to Portugal, sold her to a rich Brazilian planter. Taken to the plantation, her life underwent an abrupt change. Lusted after by men, envied by women, she was loved and respected by her brothers in suffering. Old and young slaves alike found in her a sage friend. Stoic, serene and obedient to her torturers until she died, they called her Anastasia, for she had no birth record. She said that she left in her distant homeland father, mother and a brother. She was cruelly raped to augment the workforce and to satisfy the instincts of monsters in the clothing of men. She was harassed constantly by the slave driver, in whom she inspired a morbid passion, and who raped her cruelly, turning her life into a martyrdom, as if the torture of slavery were not already sufficient. Pursued by the men in the surroundings, her nights were filled with anguish, fear and shame. Her honour, body and dignity were sacrificed by the violence of men, brutalised by instinct. Like beasts, they fought over who would possess her like an object. As an inevitable consequence, she had many children. Beautiful children with blue eyes like the blue of the sky that seemed so far away from her. In order to nurse the children of the master, she had to deny her healthful milk to her own children, who, while still young, 
were already hard at work in the big house. During the day, Anastasia worked in the sugar mill. The cane juice was denied to her, as it was the other slaves. One day, she felt the desire to taste a piece of sugar. She was seen by the evil slave driver, who, calling her a thief, placed the face iron upon her. It was vengeance. Anastasia had never allowed him to kiss her. She was pure and innocent. This punishment was dreadful and drew the notice of the mistress of the house, who, vain and jealous, upon seeing the strange beauty of the slave, feared that her husband might fall in love with her. Perfidious, without consulting her husband, she ordered a neck iron to be placed on her. She could not withstand this torture for long. The iron digging into her flesh caused tetanus, which poisoned her blood and perfected her soul. Elected by God who called her to the kingdom of heaven, where the angels live. Anastasia died after prolonged agony on a pale and sad morning. There was general grief on the plantation, reducing the productivity of the slaves who had dented her body in tears. When the fact of this sadness became known to the owner, remorse awoke too late for the pity of this slave, sacrificed in the full bloom of youth. The slave driver and the mistress felt pierced by a feeling of guilt that was so great they permitted the vigil for Anastasia to be held in the chapel, while the master, filled with remorse and compassion, provided a burial worthy of a freed person. And so, the beautiful slave, covered with flowers, was buried in the church, built by slaves, their sweat mixed in with the mortar. This story touches on so many things. But the main thing I want to bring up here are the facts that the story places such great store by Anastasia's beauty. This is one of humanity's most famous and favourite storyline tropes, that of purity and goodness being associated with physical attractiveness. Her looks are, in many ways, immaterial to the narrative of a woman being abused by her masters and punished for stealing sugar. But that beauty is constantly referenced in the story, as is her purity and her productivity as a mother. We also have the classic tropes of the jealous wife and the all-too-late remorse by those that abused our beautiful heroine. This version remained the most popular story of her for the next decade, until a society was formed with the aim of making Anastasia a Catholic saint. The leaders wanted to rally behind her as a symbol of black pride and racial harmony, and were sponsored by all people by the oil conglomerate Petrobras. They petitioned the Pope and distributed a new version of the story across the country in hundreds and thousands of prayer sheets that are still in circulation to this day. She was born more or less in the period between 770 and 1813 in the state of Bahia. A beautiful negra with blue eyes, daughter of adultery, of a plantation owner with a slave. Anastasia, for having always insisted on preserving her body in full puberty from the defiling desires of her owner, was cruelly subjected to a martyrdom that lasted years. In hateful spite, the master ordered her placed in a neck iron and a face mask of leather. She was then abandoned in a dark cell. Sometime later, dying, devastated by hunger and sickness, she was found. Her saviors took her to Rio de Janeiro, where she was given medical attention and made a member of the Brotherhood. 
Here she died and was buried. Now in this church there is constant celebration of masses for the souls of the slaves, of whom Anastasia is the only one represented in effigy in the church. And in compensation for the tortures of the slaves, God has given to the generous gaze of the portrait of Anastasia the true power to ease the suffering of all those who come close to God with sincere goodness in their hearts, faith, charity and love. This version is quite different. In this one, she is attacked by her master, not the overseer, and is successful in throwing off his advances. And it is for that that she is cruelly punished. While the first version has her dying as a result of this punishment, this one has her being saved and taken under the protection of the church. It also, of course, mentions the cult that existed up to the present day, where those that gazed upon her portrait are cured and raised up with God's love. This last bit, of course, was vital to the petition of sainthood. Now, becoming a saint isn't a matter of just a cheeky request to the Pope. There is a strict protocol, one that was ignored in this case by the petitioners in favour of creating a groundswell of popular opinion. This was helped in 1986 with an incredibly popular 100-part radio drama of Anastasia's life, which was then followed up in 1990 with a lavish miniseries broadcast on Brazilian television. However, the Catholic Church is nothing if not highly undemocratic and ignored this campaign, believing it to be nothing more than a superstition with no basis in fact. They even ruled that Anastasia had never existed in the first place. Churches were banned from housing shrines to Anastasia and prayers were not allowed to be made to her. Yet, this has not killed the cult entirely there are at least four popular shrines to Anastasia today across Brazil, and her story continues to be spread through prayer sheets and books. It is popular for black Brazilian Catholics to have prayer sheets to her in their wallets, medallions worn around their necks, and statues of her housed in home shrines. Her most visible tribute, though, comes in the naming of businesses. Bars, cafes, clothing stores and even, apparently, a Copacabana bikini shop are all named after her, with them most commonly being found in the poorest neighbourhoods. In life and in death, Anastasia was oppressed and suppressed, and yet her story refuses to die. Did she exist? Probably not, if we're honest. She's probably the amalgam of countless tales held in the heads of generations of Brazilians. But, in the words of a great wizard, just because something is inside your head doesn't mean that it isn't real. So, to channel my primary school teachers... What have we learned over the course of this season? We started off with Boudicca in England, and then went over to East Asia for Trung Truk and Mulan, then to Europe again for Tamar and Joan of Arc, then Africa with Njinga, the Americas for Sacagawea, back to Europe for Amelia Plata, Asia again for Rani Lakshmi Bai, and of course we had two more Asian ladies in Tomoe Goza and Kutulan today, 
followed finally by one last trip to the Americas for Escrava and Astasia. Twelve women, all of whom are considered to be heroines of their respective countries. They are all very different women, but there are some intriguing similarities at play here. Let's first look at social class. Around half of them, including Boudicca, Tamar, Njinga, Rani Lakshmibai and Kutulan, are of royal extraction, either ruling as a queen or having their title stolen from them, often by a foreign conqueror. Of the other half, quite a few, such as Mulan, Joan of Arc and Escrava Anastasia, are from very humble extraction, with their fame coming at times of great stress and peril. You can also draw a distinction between the warriors and those that achieve fame in other ways. The latter include Sacagawea, whose fame was caused by the involvement in exploration, and Escrava Anastasia, who of course gained it through the kinship of shared suffering through slavery. I think it's also interesting how many of them were failures. Boudicca, Trungchuk, Janavark and the Rani all rose up against foreign oppressors and were defeated and sometimes killed in battle, with eventual liberations for their people not happening for many years, in some cases centuries. And Jinga may have achieved some success, but she couldn't throw out the Portuguese entirely, and eventually her kingdom was annexed, albeit long after her death. But I think where they are all similar is when one looks at when they emerged. It was always at a time when nations were under foreign occupation or when they were emerging as significant powers. Nations, like superheroes, need origin stories. Moments when Bruce Banner becomes the Hulk, Steve Rogers becomes Captain America, Logan becoming Wolverine. No one wants to be the evil empire. They want to be the plucky underdog rebel alliance. In other words, Drake's words specifically, you need to start from the bottom, and then, now, we're here. Indeed, in many cases, our heroines are fighting against the evil empire, be it Rome, China, Portugal, or Britain. Like with all sweeping statements, this isn't a perfect one. The cult behind Tamar of Georgia, for instance, is more to do with nostalgia for past glories than a national birth. In essence, then, these women are more than just people, points of historical fact and or legend. They are cultural rallying points, places where people can come together and celebrate shared values and history. That is what all these women do, and why they are, and will continue to be, vital figures in their nation's history. Okay, that brings our third season to an end. But what comes next? Well, as you know, this show's patrons have been voting on the next topic over the past few weeks. In all, 84 votes have been cast on the Patreon page between three options. And I'm delighted to announce that there was a decisive verdict. No panicking about hanging chads or non-existent electoral fraud on this podcast. With a clear majority of 55%, our next series will be... Women of the Vatican, female power and the papacy. As you all know, I'm not really a modern historian at heart, so I'm delighted that we will be spending a great deal of the next season in the mists of the past. But why this topic? Well, 
there is a lot of talk in sociological circles about spaces. Areas that have historically and culturally been reserved for people of a particular gender, race or creed. The Vatican, the home of the papacy, is perhaps history's most entrenched and longest-lasting male-only space. Of the 260 or so popes, 3,000 cardinals and countless bishops and parish priests all have been men in the Catholic tradition. While other Christian faiths have or are beginning to accept women in the cloth, the Roman Catholic Church has remained a bulwark of male domination. Even Pope Francis, considered one of the most reform-minded popes of modern times, has said that, quote, that door is closed. And yet, men are men, and women are women. And so, throughout history, women have been able to force their way through that closed door, especially during the Renaissance period, and the years a little after. From papal mistresses and wives, to local noblewomen and even exiled queens, women have found ways to make their voices heard, and exert power, even in this most masculine of spaces. There is adultery, scandal and murder, and that's only the Borgias. It's going to be a lot of fun, and I hope to have some more guests and other kinds of episodes in there as well. Now, as I said at the start, I'm going to be going on a little bit of a summer break before starting this, and so we won't be getting cracking on the new season until the 11th of September. I'm very sorry for the length of this hiatus, but it's been a long few months, and I think I need some time to recharge before plunging headlong into season four. However, this doesn't mean the feed will be entirely silent for the next couple of months. Indeed, there will be a special episode landing next week, as I was speaking once again to a friend of the podcast, Ellen Alpsten, whom I spoke to last year about her first novel, Tsarina, who will be speaking about her sequel, The Tsarina's Daughter. I haven't got anything else booked in for the summer just yet, but you never know, there may be one or two things dropping in there. And so, finally, I'd like to thank you all so much for your support for the show, and I'd like to wish all of you a great summer. Unless you're down under, of course, in which case, happy winter. Stay safe, and I'll see you all on the other side. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns